couple of quick notes about this episode. I wanted to let you guys know that we had a few audio challenges, including Sean using speakerphone and some rambunctious kiddos playing in the background. Sean's story was just too powerful to miss, so hang in there. It's worth it. Also, the topics of this episode are adult in nature and could be triggering for some listeners. Please, as always, be compassionate and mindful with yourself and others in how you participate. Welcome to Heal. On today's episode, Sean Ballou details his path to and through addiction to heroin and the integral role taking personal responsibility, transformational education, and psychedelic medicine played to him finding freedom. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. All right, let's just dive in then, shall we? (laughs) So, you know, the way this is going to go is basically just me asking you questions and sharing about your whole story. Like the context, again, to kind of remind you is this is Heal. And the project is all about capturing people's stories of their healing journey and what does it really take to heal. And, you know, the kind of the nitty gritty and even the dark side that we don't often hear about or share about is like, not to scare people, but actually to let them know that it's normal and that's what it's supposed to look like. And I actually think that there's a lot of people who are really committed to healing. They want to get to the other side of things. And literally, if they start feeling bad, they think, oh, I'm doing it wrong. And then, you know, so it's like, what does it really take to heal? That's kind of the whole conversation here and, you know, the whole journey of it. So I invite you to just share your story and whatever components you want, and we can go as far back as you want or whatever works for you. Sure. Okay. So I guess I'll go far back. I mean, to the beginning, how I got sure. into it. How it yeah. Started. So yeah, totally. It started because I was uh, a rebellious kid and about, it was about 15, 14 or 15. That's when everybody, you know, me and my friends were intrigued and excited about, you know, what drugs and alcohol were. The interesting thing about it is, so being raised Mormon, drinking alcohol and smoking pot were like no-nos. You know, yeah. they, they were the rough, they were the, you don't do that. So what kind of got passed around and tossed around was pills. So it was really big to go to Mexico, buy a bottle of Somas, you know, for dirt cheap. And they were sold around the high school for, you know, a dollar a pill and they were everywhere. And you grew up in Arizona, right? Or was that in Utah? I grew up in Mesa, Arizona. Okay. Yeah. So, because not all of us are going to drive to Mexico that easily, but when you live in Arizona, that's like a normal thing to do. (laughs) Yes. I forget. Rocky points, like what a four hour drive. So, so yeah. So Soma's Adderall, you know, pills were just easy to get. They were around everybody, you know, I shouldn't say everybody. They just were everywhere. Yeah. So, and I still remember the first time um, I took something and I just was like, oh my gosh, there's relief. I feel great. You know, and as a kid, it's like all your problems, all my problems with my parents and family and all that, it just all kind of disappeared, you know, for a moment. And I loved it. And I remember at that time I was like, I'm going to, I want to try everything. I want to try everything except for I, for sure, you know, I've heard about addiction. And so I just remember making myself a, a little promise that I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it beyond recreational use. Yeah. You know, what, whatever that meant to a 15 year old kid. So 
pills kind of paved the way for the first time I drank. I think I was almost 16. I was a, a sophomore in high school and I got, I mean, probably alcohol poisoning. I didn't go to the hospital, but I drank, we got Bacardi O, orange Bacardi O, and I drank almost the whole bottle. And at that age, it was awful. I was puking. I was puking in my sleep. Uh, I was with a buddy. Uh, he was just trying to uh, keep us all from getting in trouble. And yeah. so kind of hid me in his bedroom. And I don't remember. What's funny is the only thing I really remember from that night was my mom and my sister showing up to his house, carrying me to the car and basically like carrying me to my bed and leaving me there. Anyway, so so that was rough. But you'd think I would have learned a lesson, but I definitely didn't. High school kind of High school stayed recreational, but I, I remember the first time that I tried Percocet, actually, was the, the next big thing, and I loved it. It was every problem, every, if Soma's helped, if drinking made a difference, if anything else helped, that was like heaven to me. And so I remember that feeling, but the good thing at that time was I was broke. So I could basically <laughs> fund getting yeah. high, you know, once a week or, you know, maybe every couple times a week, yep. not very often. And so that went on for, you know, basically all my high school years. Then the big event that happened, and, and this was kind of one of the first turning points to kind of realization, but definitely not the end. So my dad died when I was 18. Mm. He had an aneurysm. It was unexpected. Nobody knew that it was coming. He was yeah. healthy. Everything was fine. And, and one day he was gone. Now, I didn't have a close relationship with my mom. And my dad was a workaholic. So he wasn't around a lot. But he was the loving, caring parent in my life, yeah. if that makes sense. So the night that he died, I was supposed to have dinner with him. It was his birthday. No, no, no. It was my birthday. I remember now. So we were going to have dinner for my birthday. And uh, instead, my buddy had gotten some drugs and, you know, got super high. I basically just forgot about it. Mm. And, uh, you know, woke up the next day, went to work. And I still remember getting that phone call. And I, I was at work. I had this weird feeling like it felt like I knew something was wrong. Anyways, my sister told me that, you know, my dad had died. I lost it. I got super emotional when my coworkers drove me home. And that week was, I mean, crazy full of grief and everything. But I remember going, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to clean up my life. I'm going to stop doing all this stuff, drinking and drugs and all that stuff. And that lasted a couple months. I, I knew all my friends here were party animals, uh, yeah. you know, into drugs and drinking into, into all that stuff. So I called my sister, I packed my bags, and I moved to Provo, Utah, the heart of Mormonsville. Yeah. Which is funny because I love, I, I love Mormons, I love my heritage, I love, I love all that, but I also have a really hard time with church culture. And so, yeah, moved in with some roommates that were uh, way older than I was. We got along really well. Things were good, but just not my... I think I was 18. They were like 25, 26, like looking for their wives. And mm -hmm. it's like, I want to go to dance parties. I want to bump and grind on some ladies. You know, I want to, <laughs> I want to do some fun. <laughs> yeah. 
And so, so after the semester, I moved out. I moved into an apartment that was so awesome. The funnest, so it was the second semester of school, so, and it went into summer. Funnest year of my life. We threw parties. Me and I had no money. Basically, my buddy Dan funded this whole PA system. And so we put on these dance parties and, and had fun and party. And I still kind of did drugs, but all of my friends up there didn't really do them. I had, a, I had a few friends that did them, but it was kind of over here and over there. So I'd get some stuff here and I'd use it there. And I'd, I'd drink with these guys and, you know, and then not for a while and kind of lived two separate lives almost. Yeah. Until I met with uh, a guy, met up with a guy from high school whom I actually don't think did drugs at the time. Like, I don't think I, he did drugs in high school, but he was dealing. So he was dealing Oxycontin and, you know, got in real tight with him. We became buddies. I met up with the, the dealer that dealt him and there was just stuff. There was cocaine and Oxycontin and there just was everything all the time. And, and, and it was fun. And at that age, my body could handle it and I would do it and everything was great. But I, I, I knew it, I was, it wasn't making me happy. And I would, could tell I was doing a little bit too frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, I think, ended up going to rehab. Things kind of broke off with that crowd and things dissipated for me a little bit. Until the next big thing, which was I got a call from a buddy in Arizona who said his uncle got an Oxycontin prescription and he wanted to sell the whole thing. And my genius 18, 19-year-old self was like, sweet. I can buy these in Arizona for $20 a pill. They sell for $70 to $80 a pill in Utah. I'm going to make a fortune. Little did that last. So I made, I made one run. I picked up the pills, brought them back. And I remember the third person that I sold pills to was trying to trade me his little sister's iPod for a pill, which I think at the time that, you know, the iPods were $300, $400 or something like that. And I just remember like having sympathy for the guy realizing that I was a part of the destruction of society you you know what I mean I I don't know how I could explain it exactly but it's like I just realized the extent of choosing to buy and sell pills is entirely different than choosing to do them yourself if that makes sense Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and I remember having a, a real strong thought like I have an opportunity to throw flush all these down the toilet or, or sell them and my life will go down a path that I don't think I will really like. The problem is I had spent my entire savings on buying everything that I could. And, you know, I think it was like six, $7,000. So I couldn't, I couldn't muster it. And so I remember going, okay, well, I guess I'll just, I'll just stay high because I feel fine. You know, I don't think about it if I'm high. Mm. And so it was literally like that day when the true like addiction and truthfully I feel like it's not the drugs that make the addict it's the need to to escape reality and Mm -hmm. so I think I've had that forever still deal with that now on some level but that was when I became dependent on the pills addicted acting like an addict needing it needing it every moment of every day so that went on for a lot of stuff happened, started using the pills really quickly, wasn't making any money at all, using more than I could sell. And that's when a a friend of mine introduced me to heroin that, Hey, you know, and at that point you're so far in the addiction cycle 
the step into heroin is just a logical one. You know how bad it is. You know it's gross. You've heard the stories. You know people die from it. But you're so far in the desperation and need for filling the void that, that's there, that, you know, the dependency that your body has on, on the opiate, the transition is, is no big deal. It's, it's yeah. easy. And instead of $80 a pill, it's, you know, $10 a balloon, which, you know, was probably, it was basically $80 of oxycodone is probably like $15 of heroin. And so it went way farther. So I started down that path and that was a couple years. And, and you're what age at this point? Uh, I'm like 20, 21, 22, right in there. I'm 32 now. So the timeline's a little, but yeah. it was around there. Let's say 21. All my friends at this point, I kind of lost all my good friends. Not lost, but just I chose drugs over them. And so they stopped calling. They stopped hanging out. Seeing at parties every once in a while. I mean, everything was fine, but just they kind of knew. They could tell. They knew I looked weird. I got skinny. And I remember talking to a buddy because I started to get sick. I was sick all the time. Sick. When I woke up because I was withdrawing, I would use... And I'd have to use so much, the drugs were making me sick. Mm. So I'd have this brief window right when the drugs would hit my system that I'd feel good. And then literally probably 15 minutes later, I felt sick again, waited out until withdrawal, right? And so it was just this battle of 45 minutes a day where I actually felt comfortable. And my buddy was like, hey, you know, you want to start over is use a needle. Start using a needle because I was smoking. It's like, oh, okay. All right. That sounds great. Let's start over. And I, and when I say start over, like the dependency, the tolerance, everything just resets when you start yeah. using a needle. Yeah. And so I remember going home. He gave me a needle. He gave me the stuff. He kind of showed me how to do it. I went home. I started prepping it. And I remember having this really intense experience where I remembered being 15 years old almost having a conversation with myself, kind of watching myself have that conversation with myself, remembering that I promised myself that I'd, I'd never cross the line. And this was a definitive line that again, if I chose this choice, my life would get really bad and my life had already gotten decently bad. So I went to the toilet, I flushed the drugs, I broke the needle uh, and I called my sister. And so that was kind of the, the real start of waking up to, okay, something's got to give. My sister broke down. And mind you, during this whole process, my sister lived up in Utah. And anytime I was feeling lonely, I just needed to be with somebody, I could go over to her house. Yeah. I'd go to her house so high, walk in, say what's up, pass out on her couch for hours, wake up. She'd feed me, you know, never said a thing, ne never said a thing, realized it was my journey. Every bit of her was just a huge amount of love. She just was always loving towards me. When that happened, when I kind of had that epiphany, I, she was just the only option to call. She's like, oh yeah, come on over. You know, and I was like, I'm doing drugs for years. She's like, yeah, I know. I thought she didn't. I thought it was... <laughs> She's like, no, yeah, no, I'm not stupid. It's okay. Which made me cry even harder because like, you, you do love me. Oh you didn't gosh, say anything yeah. this whole time. And so, yeah, so I'm, I, I packed up my stuff. I moved in with her. I kind of, I told all my roommates what was going on. Like, I, I've got a bail, you know, I've been using drugs. They're like, oh yeah, we know. It's, it's all good. 
that, you know, go, go do your thing. They found a, a person to replace me in my room like that day. So everything was all good. Moved in with her for a little bit, knew I needed a, I, I wanted to move back home to get, it's funny as I moved to Utah to get away from my drug friends and then I needed to move away from Utah to get away from my <laughs> drug friends. I just attract them everywhere. So I called my sister-in-law uh, who was married to my brother and uh, talked to her about the whole thing. She was incredibly loving and supportive and, you know, great about it on the phone. And, uh, you know, I told her, I was like, I'm struggling. Like I'm, I'm going to be rough to live with. Are you sure that you can handle this? You know, yes. Yeah, I can. Uh, So I I moved in with them and they had had a young kid. I think Asher, my oldest nephew was like, I I don't know, a year or two old. Yeah. I I don't remember exactly all, but he was, he was small. Within five days, she had asked my brother to ask me to move out. I took that uh, really hard actually. And, you know, was very offended and very, you know, how could you do this? How could, you know, you, you said that you can handle this, whatever. And the reality is I was a really difficult person to live with and everybody's got their own problems. And yeah. sometimes if you can take something on, you can't. But so moved out, I moved in with my mom, which is, has always been toxic, you know, living with my mom, just my personality and very strong-willed, rebellious. That's how it's been, you know, my, my whole life. So that wasn't a great situation. So it was only a few days, actually, only a few days. I had made it probably, how long was I off drugs? A couple weeks. It wasn't long and it was taxing. And I remember just being depressed, but like, okay, I'm going to get through this. And it was probably around that two week mark. I got invited. Okay. Let me back up. Sorry. Mind you, all my friends. So I'm, that's now I remember. So I was 21 when I moved home because all my friends were on their missions. So yeah. they were all Mormon missionaries. They were on their missions when I came home. And so all my friends were either gone or they were kind of the drug users who had gone down the same path I had. So I kind of had stuck to myself. I came home. I talked to somebody at some random event and they're like, oh, we're having a poker game. I go over there and I end up, mind you, never do I ever win poker tournaments and I'm sitting there at two in the morning with all these guys who I just met who over hours right we we become great friends friends. yeah yeah yeah. joking with each other on the same level everything's great and I'm head to head with one guy I can't remember I don't think I won I think I no no no, I did win because it's like literally one of the only times I've ever won (laughs) and you know we're cleaning up the table and and one of the guys is like hey man we're going to Mexico tomorrow you want to come with us? Sure. Yeah. Like I have nothing going on. I have no job yet. I I've just moved home. I'm, you know, doing whatever. And I still have a little bit of money saved up. So the next day I pack my bags, I show back up at the house and my future wife is the one that rolls up in the car. <laughs> and it's like, who's this guy? So it, that was the start of our relationship, but uh, which is actually kind of key to this whole thing to a, a lot of the healing. So we meet, we go to Mexico, everything's great, right? We're starting to hang out every day. And I'm, I start to realize like, I really love this girl and she makes me want to be better, not be the, you know, the, in my mind, the piece of garbage that I was. Mm. And so it kind of gave me something bigger to go after. And I kind of off and on been to AA meetings and, and NA meetings and the LDS church has an ARP meeting. 
And I liked them. I enjoyed some of them. But again, I remember one of the last ones I went to was around that time. I got real offended because I was still struggling. Like I was still, I'd make it a couple months and I'd use. And I'd make yeah. it a couple months and I'd use. And just one or two times, but, you know, I'd break down and, and I'd use. And I think at the time, too, I was drinking a little bit. I, I can't remember. But somebody stood up and basically, like, called me out. Like, if you're not at rock bottom, you know, you, you got to hit rock bottom. And so I just, from that point forward, I was like, okay, A is not a safe place. I don't want to go there. You know, this isn't going to work. Yeah. And the big thing in AA, because I was debating whether or not I wanted to get on Suboxone, and the big, you know, group think there is that, you know, any maintenance drugs is you're not sober. And, you know, at the time I just was wanting to do something better with my life, but still very depressed and very hard getting out of bed. It just was, it was rough. It was a rough, rough time period. And so I decided to get on Suboxone and oh my gosh, I was able to start to create a life for myself and, yeah. you know, create some distance between the crappy feelings that I felt and I'd have energy and, you know, I felt good. So I was like, screw this, I'm going to do it. And how did you find Suboxone? Did you know about it already or did it happen through a program? So in the, in the drug circles, everybody kind of knows about methadone and Suboxone. It's very, it would come around as like a, hey, we're having a hard time finding heroin. So let's at least get some maintenance drugs so we don't end up in withdrawal. Type mm, of thing. Mm -hmm. But this is like, okay, I'm going to commit to getting on and, you know, I got on and, and it was, it was fantastic. I mean, for years it was fantastic. The decision that had me get on Suboxone actually was going to do the landmark forum. So I was still struggling every couple months relapsing and I went into the landmark forum. And the landmark forum's a personal growth and development, like a seminar. Yes. So, you know, kind of like Tony Robbins, not really. Uh, right. transformational seminar yeah. program. But transformational education, yeah. I had no idea what it was. I had actually started to go see this, uh, I call him a counselor. He's not really a counselor. He's more of a personal transformation coach, actually. Yeah. Uh, but he previously was a, a marriage and family therapy counselor. And uh, he does mus muscle testing and, you know, does some interesting alternative to, to typical therapy that you think. Yeah. And I'd been seeing him for a while and we'd just been working through a lot of deep, dark stuff. And I think throughout that, those months in being with my wife, seeing Steve and leading up to the Landmark Forum, I started to realize like, oh, all of this drug stuff has been a need to fill a void that almost felt like a hole in my chest. Mm. Didn't exactly know what it was. Didn't know why it was there. But, you know, I was a rebellious kid. I didn't have the best relationship with my mom. My dad died. And I, I was just harboring all this pain. Working with Steve, working with the personal coach guy, we just started to crack through a lot of that stuff. And I started to see it for what it was. And almost like seeing it through a third party's perspective, the way that I was acting and what I was doing. When before it was just kind of like, you know, I'm on a one-way freight train doing what feels good and what I want to do. And I still remember it was, it was the last session before I registered. He basically was like, all right, you've done great work. I don't remember how he worded it, but it was kind of like, it's time to graduate, go to the landmark forum and, you know, maybe I'll never see you again. 
<laughs> like, like you've done some great work. So I went and I was very optimistic about it, but literally had no idea what it was. I yeah. went to a, uh, an introduction and in that two hours or whatever it is, it was just like, Oh, there's something awesome here. And so during the course, they ask you what you want to get out of it. And for me, it was like, I want to get off drugs. And everybody was very apt to, to tell me like, this is not a sobriety course. This is yeah. not for drug addicts. You know, this isn't that type of thing, but okay. All right. Awesome. Like anything's possible for you. So, yeah. so go into it with you going to be off drugs. So you, you did the landmark forum and then what did you get from that? The biggest thing was what I should say is I really had a huge resentment for my mom my, my whole life, just that yeah. she wasn't the mom that I expected, that she should have been some other way, that she didn't love me enough, she didn't tell me she loved me enough, on and on and on. And the big thing that I discovered was that I was doing drugs as a big fuck you to my mom. Mm. And then the bigger thing, was the realization of how big of an asshole that makes me, right? And to really grasp the depth of how many decisions, how many things I had done in spite of my mom, in spite of, you know, she was Mormon, so I'm going to do drugs to spite her. I'm going to live my, I'm going to do whatever. And I mean, I was, I was bawling my eyes out, just yeah. that level of awareness of, of the web of toxicness that that was. And I remember, you know, in the course, they kind of ask you to call, you know, call somebody and, you know, get complete, like work it out to let them know what you've discovered. And I called my mom the first time and, you know, it was like, ah, you know, mom, I discovered this. I just, you know, want to say I'm sorry. And, you know, she went into, well, you were a difficult child and, you know, blah, blah, blah. blah. And, I didn't say this, but I basically was like, F you mom, fine. And I called her again, you know, cause it just was like, that's still burning in my, it's burning in here, you know, yeah. like I still hold so much resentment. And uh, the second call I walked in with the realization of like, okay, there's nothing that my mom, my mom doesn't control my life and letting her holding resentment towards her is only hurting me. I mean, it hurts her too, but the only thing there is to do is to let that go. And so I could see that. But that call didn't go so great either, right? I still got triggered. And it was the last day and I actually went up to the front of the stage and kind of worked this out with the, the landmark form leader. And the, the big thing was the ultimate realization that you take offense to everything. It's a personal choice. The resentment that you hold, it's all you. Take responsibility for your life. That you're a drug addict and that you've ended up here has to do with the things that you're not dealing with. And it just blew me out of the water. And when I called my mom that day, I just was in such a humble place. And I remember for the first time ever that I called my mom and I just was like, you know, mom, I just, you know, I know I've called you a couple times. I just want you to know that I love you and I'm grateful for the, for the mom that you have been. And the interesting thing is her reaction wasn't too much different than the other two calls. But in that moment, I just realized I loved my mom for who she was, for who mm -hmm. she is and how she is. And it didn't matter. And she's not going to be any other mom than exactly who she is. And that was the last time I had ever done heroin. 
was the the last time before walking into the landmark forum, which I think was about a month and a half before that cleaned so much that I had been holding that I didn't even know that I was holding onto. And if someone would have asked me like, you know, Hey, are you doing drugs because of your mom? And hell no. No, of course not. It's insanity. My mom doesn't define anything in my life. Yeah. And yeah, it just, it just shifted. And so I actually had spent after that course, I just was like, I'm, I'm going to keep on going this thing. I want to know what else they have to offer. Like what else am I not seeing? And the big thing was just to realize that the course, they tell you this, that like you have a view and everybody has their view and it's all individual to each person. And the course allows you to kind of step outside your view and see it through somebody else's perspective and to actually have that happen and then have that piece of me heal. I was just like, okay, all right, let's, let's keep on going. So yeah, yeah. spent years working with Landmark in a whole bunch of different capacities. And there was a lot of healing that came through that until I think for me, there was a realization that I wanted something more. I don't think I was sure I knew what that was. Yeah. Now I believe it's, it's a spiritual connection and, mm-hmm. and wanted something more. And there was something a little bit, uh, I don't want to say lacking because it's just not what that is. It's almost like there was somewhere else to go as well. Yeah. Yeah. Something moving me somewhere else. And now things, things were great for quite a while. I partnered up with my brother who was a dentist um, right out of coming out of the Lamarck Forum. And uh, he could just tell that I was on fire. He was struggling in his business. We ended up taking his practice and tripling it. And I moved to Texas and consulted with a doctor, uh, helped him, buy a practice and essentially transition management and everything did that for a year moved back home we bought another practice uh, adopted our first son out of child out of foster care had twins i mean just <laughs> life was good now was it all butterflies and rainbows hell no right like deep-seated pain waves of depression but i just didn't deal with it the same way i didn't yeah. didn't turn to heroin or opiates to get what I wanted. But you were still on Suboxone this whole time, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a support there for you as well. Yeah. Huge support allowed me to, to create a gap between all of that and, and create all this, be a husband. And mind you, you know, marriage wasn't easy. Raising kids has not been easy. All that stuff. It's been, it's been a lot. In fact, I think the next big thing that occurred was having kids. And I, you know, so nervous and we had them and, and mind you, I've been doing personal work and still working with Steve and, you know, every time there's something, you know, I feel like I, I, that's been the big drive is I think where I've healed along all this period of time is the, when I start to feel resentment, anger, hostility, not being well, anything like that, it's like, oh, let's go figure out what that is, you know. Yeah. Who am I mad at? What am I holding on to? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's been the, the one defining characteristic in all the difficulty that's actually had me continue to progress is the willingness to take responsibility and continue. And I can also hear continuing awareness, you know, how critical that is that you're willing to look, okay, where is this coming from? What is that about? And then in the looking, there's choice. And then you keep taking choices around being self-responsible. Yeah. Yeah. And not, not always the, the best choices. 
but I think at least, you know, three out of five have been. And that's, that's how a lot of this has been is three steps forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back, you know, but it's, <laughs> it's always been over the course of time. It's been in yeah. the right direction. The interesting thing that's always been there is all the really difficult things that, that, that have been difficult for me always spark that need to, to escape reality, mm. right? I think having kids was the next thing that did that. The hard part is I've always had this desire to, to be, I want to be a good dad. I have this like one half that wants to like be a dad and mow his lawn and, you know, iron his clothes and, <laughs> and hide. And then this other guy that just wants to go live on the beach and sell tacos in Costa Rica or something, yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and so that was hard. I think when, after we adopted Van, what's interesting is that wasn't even a difficult decision adopting Van. That was very just like, yeah, you know, we did foster care. He was in our house and he's like, he's not going anywhere else. Like he's going to live here with yeah. us. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is my son. But then, so we, we did in vitro, we had the twins and that was a big, just pivotal moment where for me, it was like the the Costa Rican living on the beach selling tacos, Sean yeah. died, God. right? Like, like he was gone, right? We've got three kids. I can't ever go do that. It's and not are those work. the kids thumping and stomping out there in the background? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've heard it from time to time and I was going to bring it up, but I figured they'd come into the storyline at some point. Hopefully my son or wife will stop that at some point. <laughs> so that Costa Rican fantasy or, or creation... Oh was dead for you yeah whatever yeah. that was single guy do whatever he wants type of mentality whatever yeah. what I don't know freedom on some level I think is what I felt like I lost I started to I think that's when the depression really started to set in again right where it waved and I and I just it's like I allowed it to set in like that guy's dead this is all I have I go to work every day do the same thing and all I could do is play out this 20 years of doing the same thing every yeah. day, taking a vacation twice a year, you know, and just hating it. And I started drinking pretty heavily around that time. I'd probably been drinking for two months about every day. And I remember one night I was sitting in my chair and my family went on vacation with, they, they weren't around, they weren't there. And I was really, really drunk and just sitting in the, sitting in the depression and not really knowing what to do. And I just started thinking about suicide and like, what's the point if this is going to be it for 20 years, just very selfish, all about me, not thinking about my kids or my wife or anything, but just what, what's left for me in, in life. You know what I mean? And I, pulled my gun out and I was playing around with it and kind of like, I don't want to say I was attempting suicide because I wasn't, I just was really toying with the idea of it and being mm -hmm. stupid, being incredibly drunk was anyways, I'm very drunk. Remember I cocked the trigger and I was playing around and I was pointing it and, and just whatever. And I dropped, I, I shot, I accidentally, I shot the gun in the house away from me up at the ceiling. I freaked out. I dropped the gun and some reality of the situation set in then, but I was so drunk. I just passed out on the couch. I woke up the next day, saw the hole, saw the gun and just started bawling. Like, yeah. holy crap. I was 
incredibly close to to this happening. My kids, my the twins were very young. Van, I think at the time it was like three ish, very young. And I remember that was there was another pivotal choice right there where I could have gotten the patch and patched up that hole and not told Aaron about it and let it all go. Cause I knew I couldn't bring myself to tell her what had happened, but I just was like, I'll just leave the hole. And I got my gun. I set it away. At that point in time, I'd called a couple friends and just kind of talked to them that people that had dealt with similar things or dealt with depression, just people that I really relied on. One of them was a good friend that lived in Oregon and we had talked a little bit and you know, he was like, come out, come out to Oregon, come visit me. We're going to go on a psychedelic experience. And I was like, really trying to not do drugs. I, I don't know if I should. I don't know if that's wise. And he was like, trust me, this isn't, this isn't like that. It's not like that. Just come out, come visit. This will be, this will be an experience. And he had sent me some, some research. He's like, just start reading some of this stuff. And what I started to read was a bunch of studies coming out from Johns Hopkins and all these places. And they're really pushing to legalize MDMA for the treatment of PTSD. Yeah. It's psilocybin for the treatment of depression, psilocybin, you know, magical mushrooms for the treatment of depression. And, and the research that happened back in the seventies with LSD that kind of all got thrown under the rug. And so I just started to get like really enthralled and, and curious about the psychedelic world. Like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe this could make a difference and help. But I kind of put it off. I just was like, yeah, okay, I'll come out, you know, yeah. sometime, you know, whatever. And and he was like, come out this day, pick the day, you know, like, yeah, come out. Like, yeah okay, sure. sure, I'll see you there. And it was probably two weeks later, my wife noticed the hole in the ceiling and asked me what it was. And I just was like, ah, shit, I was hoping this never came, but here it is. And I just like, well, I, you know, and I told her the whole story before I got drunk, the gun went off. And that was really, she was like, you've got to, you've got to do something. You've got to stay here. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I think the big epiphany was that, that weekend. It was about a week later when I was supposed to go up to Oregon to visit my buddy. And I, I tried to get out of it. He called me like, Hey, you coming? You know, I'm pumped. I got the camping site. Like we're going to, we're going to, hang out um and uh, tried to put it off he's like do not bail do not bail I'll be so mad at you if you bail like just show up come got the got the flight for the next day hopped on the plane went up there and he's like okay you know picks me up he's a really good friend of mine takes me to the Oregon coast like holy crap I didn't know the Oregon coast was, was this beautiful yeah, yeah just it's amazing out there and you know the way the forest meets up with the the ocean is incredible. Anyways, he's like, okay, you know, tomorrow we wake up, we're going to take some MDMA and we're just going to have an experience, you know? And, you know, and I asked ask him a bunch of questions and I did mushrooms once when I was like, well, I did them a few times back in high school, like yeah. in the midst of all that stuff. And they were fun, but they were just kind of a fun, another drug, another alternative, yeah. you know, to, to what I liked. So I, we woke up, took the MDMA, and I remember like, what, 45 minutes later, feeling the most loving, beautiful feelings that I had felt as a kid, but felt like they had died, felt like they were just gone and depression had taken over. And it was just the first time I felt like since having the kids, maybe even a little bit before, 
where I remembered I could feel if that makes sense. Right. And I, and I, in my mind, I was going to be on Suboxone the rest of my life. And it just had me start contemplating like, is Suboxone just kind of numbing me out? Is that, am I just living this kind of jaded life? You know, is that why I feel like there's no point? We took it, we ended up taking a couple doses and we're on it like all day. And it was one of the funnest days of my life. And the love I had for him and I called my wife and just poured out the love to her. And there was, it was just so much love that, that was present. And in, it was in that experience where I, I just, I had sat with what I had done with the gun and mm. realized like, no matter how depressed, no matter what I want, this feeling is possible. Like everybody can feel this feeling and maybe it had died or dissipated for a little bit, or it was just gone for a little while. But I remember going almost like, almost like if I had fought the dragon and won as far as that goes, not that yeah. it can come back, I'm not trying yeah. to say anything like that, but like since that time, it hasn't even been an option, you know, in the darkest of days. And so that was, it was just incredible. It was an incredible experience. I shared that with my wife. She was so happy and uh, yeah, it started to make a huge I mean, it, life started to be better. It still had bad days. Things were still rough. I was on some boxing, which led to, what was that now? A year and a half ago? A year and a half ago, I ended up tearing the disc, my L5S1 disc. Yeah. Um, having my first migraine, going to the hospital, thinking I'm having a brain aneurysm. And going to the hospital for, I started hallucinating in the day. Didn't know why, didn't know what was going on. And that's, oh yeah, it was right after that that I called you. That was mm -hmm. when, yeah. So I'd been in the hospital twice. I felt I had never had had a health issue in my life. Didn't know what was going on. Kind of freaking out. Decided that it was time to start seeing some doctors and start figuring this out. Went to some doctors. Nobody really had any answers kind of lost a lot of faith in the regular medical system through that experience. Everybody basically just wanted to rule out that it wasn't their problem. And when they ruled it out, I was, you know, like, Hey, see you later. And that's when I remembered you and was like, okay, I'm going to call Sarah and see if something on the naturopathic side will make a yeah. difference. And it had made a huge difference. And I think it was around that time. I think I had always been honest with you and shared with you when I started doing mushrooms, it was after that experience. I can't remember the whole timeline of it, yeah. but I really like got into psychedelics and really believed that they had something to offer, but I kind of used them more as a medicine almost like, okay, let's take a dose of something to help relieve my depression. Right. And I think I was a little bit reluctant to tell you at first, but I was, you know, it's kind of a big conversation to, you know, open up into. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. But between working with you, taking mushrooms kind of, you know, medicinally, which they did, they, I would take them and I'd feel like depression symptoms relieved for, you know, sometimes up to three weeks. Yeah. But it, it made it, made a really big difference, but it seemed to always kind of keep tracking back and I'd always kind of feel crappy and I couldn't think about, I couldn't figure it out. You were the one that was like, Hey, so I started reading some stuff and realize there's these rare instances where uh, suboxone can start doing the opposite 
of what it's supposed to do. And when you said that, it was like, why didn't it, like, what I was st- feeling is I'd take my Suboxone and I'd start to feel like I was withdrawal in withdrawal. Yeah. It never felt good, but yet my body still was dependent on it. I still needed it. And so it was a very, really interesting experience. And I think it was, it was months, right? So I, yeah. So, I mean, I I remember this really vividly because I had never taken anybody through this process before. And it was like, you know, you called me right around new year's and by February I was like, okay, here's this healthy 31 year old male with no underlying conditions, except this history of narcotic use. And I just dug into the Suboxone research because I'm like, he's on it. And what I've seen with other pharmaceuticals is when somebody's done with them, like when the body doesn't need that anymore, the drug itself starts to be the issue, you know? And it was like, that's what we started to talk about was just like, could it be possible that you've been doing the work? And it's like, you just need to not have any opiates in your system at all. And we were sending you back to your prescribing doctor and talking to him about it. And he's the one that was like, sweet, Sean, if you want to try and do something, go for it. So we had, you know, partnership and collaboration with your medical doctor around the possibility of investigating is some of what you were dealing with actually coming from, and you were on a low dose at that point, even still, I think. But But it was like your body was just rejecting it. That was how it looked from over here. Yeah. Yeah, and it scared me. The idea of getting trying to get off of it scared the crap out of me because I, I mean, it had been eight years, you know, yeah. where that was that was life. And yeah, but it was it was between working with you and kind of delving into psychedelics and getting off Suboxone, where a lot started to, I don't know, dissipate. It's hard to describe a psychedelic experience if you haven't had one but it's, it's like, to me, it's a very spiritual experience. It's a very, the realizations and the, the the things that come to you seem far beyond yourself, far beyond your own thinking. So I'd taken them basically recreationally, medicinally for, for the better part of a year. And every time I'd kind of try to take them too much, it's almost like, they have a spirit of their own and they're not something that drives you to want to take them all the time. And if you do, if you try it, it's like the miraculous nature of what they are fades a little bit. And so I had had a couple very awakening experiences. And for me, it was like, I started to kind of research religions that had you been using psychedelics and kind of started reading about the native americans here that have been using peyote and the peruvians that have been even using ayahuasca and there's even southern in south america there's or sex that have used mushrooms and accounts of people in siberia using mushrooms and and the pagans, you know, used mushrooms. There's accounts of Christians using belladonna and ergot, you know, a thousand years ago that they suspect had, right before they got to the poisonous levels of them, they had a psychedelic experience with them. Yeah. Yeah, which, which started to intrigue me a lot because I had just kind of, I don't want to say I was abusing them, but it's almost like 
you might have a better word for what I'm trying to say. It's like there was like a a reverence that I started to have for them. And and I started to realize like to just do them on, you know, Saturday morning in my backyard was kind of disrespectful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I see, I don't even know if I want to say it's disrespectful. It's like, it's just not giving them the respect that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's exactly disrespectful, but no, I can get the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Like, not like there's anything wrong with anybody. Yeah. Taking They're not going to judge you for it because they don't operate no. that way. But yet there's this opportunity to bring a really high regard and a high level of respect to them. Yes. And that's what I started to realize because when I would, bring a little bit more respect and like write out an intention and really think about what I wanted to get out of the experience. I'd have that happen. Not, not every time and not always in the way that I wanted it to, but it was very interesting. So I started to ask around and I wanted to go to a ceremony. I wanted to find somebody that was doing a ceremony and I came in contact with a guy through a friend of mine who was also kind of starting to be intrigued with psychedelics and this guy led mushroom ceremonies and you know here just in his apartment and wow was that incredible incredibly terrifying incredibly crazy very very different in a ceremonial setting than it is in a recreational setting Mm. it's it's almost like staring at the your pain my experience in, in my ceremony, it was like staring at the, the painful things in your life. And as you stare at them, you almost go through the eye of that needle. And on the other side, like you've dealt with it. Hmm. And in, the, in the experience, you can run away from it. And I've had this, I've kind of had this experience before where it's like, you know, you can run away from this. It'll be waiting right here for you but almost like the only way to truly deal with the pain within is to, to, to truly face it. You know, you can numb it with drugs. You can numb it with exercise, food, pornography, yeah. whatever, sex, you know, anything you want, but until you're willing to really face the painful things and deal with them. And there's some things that I have not been willing to face. And I'm sure there'll be plenty as my life goes on that are like, Oh, I don't know if I want to deal with that one right now but that's been my experience and it's been uh it's been amazing it's been i don't really want to to me even that experience is very uh sacred so i don't really want to go into what happened if that makes sense yeah and what i saw but it was you be willing i don't think this was the same time there was one you shared about i think was last summer where you had the visceral experience of confronting the feeling of anxiety in your chest and and having a transformation with that because that was inside of we you shared it with me when it happened and and i watched you shift it was like sean was one way before that happened and that was i think right after you had done we'd completely weaned you off of the suboxone i don't think you had you either were about to not have any in your system or you didn't have any in your system at that point it was really synchronous with that time period yeah uh yeah i think it was right I think it was right before because it was one of the things that had freaked me out about getting off was like Suboxone's my depression med, my anxiety med, my feel good med, my everything. So yeah. So I actually, this was a, this wasn't ceremony. This was, I went on a camping trip with a friend 
and uh, we had taken some LSD and all my experiences with LSD have just been, I don't want to say they haven't been awakening or, you know, crazy, but most of it has just been very fun, a very fun, uh, more light experience, positive. And this one wasn't any different. You know, we went, we spent hours rowing on the canoes and every, you know, I'm starting to have this experience. And I actually remember I, I started like, I want to have an epiphany. I want to have something amazing happen. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, nothing was happening. And, and when you take LSD, it's a good 10 hours that you're in this experience. And I think about six hours in, I was kind of getting a little bit frustrated. And I just kind of was like, well, okay. It just was fun. It just got to see some bright colors and some cool things, whatever. And I laid down in my buddy's camping chair and closed my eyes and just started to have this beautiful uh, vision of silvers and golds that started to weave throughout each other. And they started to weave on my body. Right. And, and I could see my body, you know, my eyes are closed. It's all happening with my eyes closed. And I started to, Oh, the thing I forgot to mention is that, so that whole, that whole experience was laced full of anxiety. Like I could feel it off and on throughout the entire time, but it's a normal feeling for me. It was fine. It was no big deal. And so I sit down, I'm sitting in the chair and I'm starting to see this and it's beautiful and the anxiety kind of starts to dissipate and then it starts to get really strong, really, really strong. And then that vision, I, you know, it, I look down at my body and I start to see the anxiety as these gold it's almost like it was liquid metal type mm. of, I don't yeah. know. It's very important to me how it looks. <laughs> Not that it matters to anybody. <laughs> um, but it starts to, it starts to just kind of those bars go into my chest and they start they're They're there and they're kind of moving around. The anxiety starts to get so intense. And then those, those, the gold starts to dissipate all over my whole body and all over my, everywhere my head everything and i start to see myself almost like neo in the matrix when he first you know takes the pill yeah that's what it looked like to me and then it burst and everything burst in the that feeling that deep-seated anxious feeling that's been there my whole life like a ball of uncomfortable i don't know how to describe it marbles in my chest i don't know how everybody experiences anxiety but that's how it was for me that's how i described it it burst and I have, I have never since that experience felt anxiety, how I, how I used to describe it since. And so that was, I mean, to me, that was incredible. And I remember when I first shared it with you, I'm like, yeah, it's been a few days. It's been a few days. I, this, this was a cool experience, but you know, I'm sure I'll feel it again sometime soon. Yeah. And, and I haven't. Yeah. And now I use the word anxious or, you know, anxiety as more of a an adjective to describe like what am I trying to say like being anxious to go on a trip being anxious yeah. you know but I don't have this like anxiety you know this burning gnarly yeah. feeling in my chest I even remember you sharing something the effect of saying like you just even if you have body sensations in your body it just doesn't occur to you as anxiety anymore it was like yeah. you could even have sensation there and it was the sensation but the whole world of having anxiety was gone almost like i realized it had been an interpretation it had just been a story about a feeling that i felt in my chest and yeah. the story was gone the experience of it was gone 
And I've so actually where are you now with life? Where am I now? <laughs> I'm actually yeah. in probably the most peaceful place that I've been in. The craziest part is amid all, amidst all this COVID-19 stuff. Uh-huh. I'm actually probably the, not like I'm happy that it's happening, but I'm in a happy place. I'm in a, mm. like, let's save the world, you know? If, yeah. If I need to step up and go, you know, take masks to the hospital or, you know, yeah. deliver food to the COVID-19 patients, I'm your guy, you, yeah. you know? And, and you know, we've had to make a lot of work decisions and things are crazy. We might lose our businesses and whatever, but I'm just in a very grounded place. Things are, for me, it's, it's almost like I've lived a life of being minorly bipolar. Mm. It's been great. It's been awful. It's been happy and fun things happening. Oh, I'm depressed for a couple of days. I've probably been the most even keel the last the first six months after Suboxone was, was rough. And then slowly after that, it's just been a peaceful, I don't know. It is the hard part is this. It's like, where did all the healing come from? Uh-huh. All of these places, getting off medication and taking eating healthier and taking supplements that I need and working with psychedelics and working with transformational coach and doing landmark and you know, it's, it's like, yeah. it's, it goes on forever, which brings me back to what I was saying before. I think the, the one, I think the one thing that's gotten me through this is the willingness to take responsibility and to look within, to, yeah. to be willing to be aware of what I haven't been aware of, to be willing to face the, the difficult things, to face the pain, to realize that the pain's not going to kill you. Yeah. Hurts, but it's not going to kill you. Absolutely. So I was fine. actually just um, interviewed on Monday for a natural health doctor summit. And I was um, being, I was being interviewed this time. And uh, she asked me like, what do you think like some of the most important traits are for people who build resiliency and heal and restore their bodies back? And we talked about awareness being number one, that willingness to look, to see it. And then the next part is compassion. You know, because you can look at it and you can have it justify your story and you can have it make it all worse and like see what a horrible person I am and look at this evidence of why my life is never going to work, you know. But I think that's part of what you're speaking to in the taking responsibility is like there's actually a lot of compassion in taking responsibility. I think it's integral, you know, because for a lot of people, responsibility is a word we associate with blame and fault, not empowerment. You know, it's like, I'm responsible. I did it. I effed up my entire life. This is all my fault. And that's not what you're referencing. It's like this deep compassion and willingness to take ownership and then act in the face of that is that's what I've seen you do over the years. And that's what I've heard you share, you know, is that distinction between blame and fault responsibility, but like ownership of it and being like, okay, this is mine and this is mine. And this means I can do something about it. I can alter it. Or one thing yeah. you and I have talked a lot about is also just being willing to sit with and be with things. Like you said, like the pain hurts a lot, but it's not actually going to kill you. And, you know, in our social isolation and all of the things that are happening right now with the COVID pandemic, there's a, you know, a whole nother level of being willing to sit still and be with things because we can't, even, I mean, I can't even, I'm watching myself, you know, it's like 
the first three weeks I was like, oh yeah, it's this next thing. And of course we need to do it and all of that. And like, I really did think I was going to go back. I'm in New York right now with my family. And I really thought I was going back to Utah this weekend. Like I just, I just figured there was like no way I wouldn't like go back and then I'd be there for a while. And then I'd go to the next thing and like, nope, I'm not going anywhere. And it's like, just now I'm starting to be like, oh shit. (laughs) And like my travel bug is the way that I deal with stuff. I like get in a car and move. I jump on an airplane. I go to the next place. I like, like rearranging my scenery. And so it has been interesting to now watch like for myself, you know, I I don't know that I'd go so far as calling it an addiction, but I can see those places where I will use my circumstances to escape what's happening right now in my life or whatever I'm facing. And there's been a, a, a big opportunity to just be with it and be with it and be with it and be with it. Well, the other thing that's interesting about that is I feel like one of the things I've started to even appreciate is like addiction itself, like for myself Mm. and realize like, do you have to become an addict to learn things? No, absolutely not. Really difficult way. Actually, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of people, a lot of people end up dead, you know, that go down that pathway, you know, but it has taught me so many things. It is the pain of addiction and what it's brought has taught so much, has caused me to look within, has, I maybe wouldn't have dealt with any of the things that I have dealt with. I mean, I have a relationship with my mom right now, you know, you know, mm-hmm. like who knows had I not ended up down that, that pathway. And it's hard, especially on the rough days or, you know, when some of those thoughts come up, but it's like, I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for the, the painful things in life that push you towards growing, if that yeah. makes sense. That's one of the things I've been able to sit with and be with mm-hmm. a little bit, you know, in all this, it's like, as yeah. a, I'm getting stir crazy too. <laughs> I can imagine there are going to be a lot of people who listen to this podcast in varying different states of dealing with their own addictions or people that are close to them. And like, like, what's something you could give to them that's useful? Like, what do you see would make a difference for people that are like in the middle of it? They're on the journey. I think the hardest thing for me was wondering if it would get better, right? Not that this is how every addict is, but I think it's how most of us are is a, we don't sit with our internal selves very well. We don't like, you know, we want to escape reality. We want to feel something else. And in those moments, it's really easy to grab something and to escape. You know, it's really easy to go to, to do that because you're not sure if it's ever going to dissipate. You're not sure if it's ever going to go away, if you're ever mm-hmm. going to heal it. If, I mean, I'm thinking about healing it, just like, holy crap, I don't want to feel this way. But to realize, like, if you continue to work, it's not an easy pathway. I mean, I've been I'm 32, so for what, 17 years? And I'm still in the midst of it. I've got some peace right now. Next month may not be, right? you know, it's, it's life, you know, and that's part of the other realization is that it's life, but it's gotten so much better, so much more peaceful. It's almost like I, I don't want to, I don't want to be cliche. Like it's going to get better. It's going to get better if you work at it. It's going to work, get better if you try. And if you try, there is light in the tunnel. There mm-hmm. is peace. There is those moments that, that you experience for some of it's been with my kids for some of it's been those psychedelic experiences 
interactions with people, you know, where you realize like, this is why it's worth the fight. This is why it's worth that battle is for those moments, for those beautiful momentary experiences with my kids, with my family, with my wife, with my sister, with my brother, you know, with my employees, with, you know, and if you're open to them, they can happen all the time. I don't know. I mean, there's, there's so many things. Don't, there's that. If something doesn't work, try something else. Mm. Just keep on, just keep on trying. Just keep on doing something and don't get, have compassion. That was one of the things that I discovered in one of my earlier psychedelic experiences was to have compassion for any time I pick something up, I use something, I do something stupid um, to realize like this is life and this is the way that you learn. This is your personality. This is how you are and that it's okay. Like it's okay if you, if you relapse, it's okay if you take something, it's okay. You know, it's okay if, Right now, you need to escape reality mm. today, you know, or whatever, right? Maybe you won't tomorrow. Maybe you won't for the next five years, right? But there's nothing inherently wrong with the way your brain is wired, the way my brain is wired, that that's what I go to. It's yeah. the way that it is. And that's okay. It's a big deal. It's not, I don't think the most common conversation around addiction. I know it's, it's growing. I know there's been a lot more of that building into the addiction community, but I think there's still a lot, you know, and there's different tools at different times that are useful, but the forceful abstinence, the forceful abstaining, the just absolutely at no cost, do I ever, ever, ever do this again can become its own process of self-abuse. And it's also can be useful. I mean, that's, it just really depends. That's that part of like where each of us are at, you know? And I have spent more time working with people around relationships to, you know, unhealthy relationships to food, everything from eating disorders to disordered eating, compulsive eating. I've had my own versions of that throughout my life. And, you know, there was, I could tell myself all the time, like, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to binge again. I'm never going to, you know, eat an entire pint of ice cream, an entire large pizza, and then I'm going to go walk all of the containers to the dumpster and put them underneath something so that nobody in my household knows that I just did that. (laughs) Now I invite my friends over. We do it together. (laughs) But, you know, and, and at one level people like whatever you ate pizza and ice cream, but at that time it was inside of a cycle of self-hatred and rejection and escaping my emotions and eating my emotions. Like, you know, working through all of those things. And now I really do actually have the freedom to, wow, whole man, I just ate an entire pint ice cream. There it went, thousand calories done. Like, but it doesn't have that guilt and shame attached to it. You know, that's what's, it's now just like, I, I actually measure it as a barometer in my life. Like, okay, I've been eating a lot of ice cream lately. So what am I not dealing with? Where am I not expressing myself? What's going on? Like it shows up for me as an indication of something else instead of the thing itself that I will beat myself up about, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm glad you said that. Cause that's the other thing that I feel like addiction is it's a, it's an expression of some, something far deeper. Yeah. It's not the drugs and alcohol that are the problem. That's not how it is. That's, that's your band aid. 
Yeah. And realize that maybe you can start looking at what's underneath the bandaid. And there's so many tools, you know, therapy and counseling, personal growth and transformation, coaching, and there's a lot of research coming out about psychedelic medicine being a really incredible tool in that toolkit. And the MAPS program has moved into, I'm pretty sure they're now just starting phase three clinical trials. The FDA is actually very on board to get a pharmaceutical grade MDMA available to practitioners that we really could see that as a, as a actual pharmaceutical option in the next couple of years. And then I think that may open up the door for more of the sacred plant medicine to be accepted or decriminalized. And we'll kind of see, we'll see where that path takes us, but it's research I'm definitely really interested in. And thank you for sharing your story and being willing to just be so authentic about your journey. I don't think oh, very yeah. many of us get that kind of a glimpse into like, yep. And then there I was doing heroin. And then this was the next thing, you know? And I also just want to highlight, cause I think for some people, when they, when they hear heroin addict, they don't think of the white six foot two guy from the suburbs who runs a dental practice and has, you know, three kids. And, and so like recognizing that again, to just keep creating that addiction hits us in all walks of life and all levels of life, all colors, all shapes, all sizes. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So it's, I'm certain this is going to make a big difference for people. Thank you, Sean. Hope so. Yeah, you're welcome. Awesome. All right. We'll sign off. All right. You're well, Sarah. Bye. Bye. Thank you to today's guest, Sean Ballou, for his open-hearted sharing into a world of transformation. You can learn more about finding your own healing by going to sarahmarshallnd.com or following me on Instagram at sarahmarshallnd. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpour, and editor extraordinaire, Kendra Vicken. Thank you for being here. Until next time.